Hello, Mariana. Oh, hi. Have you, you been? We don't, <laughs> yeah, we don't have Thomas, and so we don't know who starts. <laughs> yeah, we, we used to get back and forth, didn't we? we? We had fun. Good days, good days. So how, You were how, lamenting the fact last night. Well, you got to go to Bible study again, and I didn't. And uh, we used to have that on Sunday mornings you know, at, our, at our previous churches. And I would be able to, you know, be in Sunday school or, or lead Sunday school or participate in some way. And, and then you would also have conversations with Thomas. And then I would have a weekly, you know, three hour phone call with Thomas that we would record a three, section of. But really three hours. And we, we still have our weekly, weekly calls. We just can't publish them. Um, so, yeah, when when you know, like you went off to Bible study, you know, and I had both kids and, and for people who have been following along now, you know, little one is what? 15 weeks old. That's right. You might hear her in the background. By the way, when, when did we stop saying like 18 weeks, 15 weeks, 24 weeks and shift to months. And then when you get to like, like our son's age, you stop saying, Oh, they're 39 months. And you, <laughs> you know, that's funny. Or, anyway. or like our eight year old who says she's nine. I'm like, but you're not, you turn. Well, I mean, it's almost June. I'm like, it's really not though. When you're you round know, up. Yeah. yeah. You have two months until you turn nine. I, I, I still call the 11-year-old 12, you know, and that's that's not a good thing. Uh, it seems like the eight-year-old and you estimate time the same way. Yeah, time is a flat circle. Yeah, I feel nine, so I'm just going to say I'm nine. Uh, exactly. Usually people stop at three months, but I don't know. Maybe I'll stop at four months. Because I don't want to do the math anymore, I think. You know, it's like, okay, there are four weeks in a month and kid is four months old. So 16 week, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So you want us to Bible study, which is cool. I mean, it's part of your job, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't have the weekly conversation with Thomas about, you know, whether or not you can authoritatively read the Bible and, and make any kind of, of conclusions from it. Or is, is it somewhere, you know, like an intersectional thing that you and the Bible participate in, or is it something where, you know, those, those types of conversations, um, not to mention that we used to have this pretty vibrant community of brewology. Yeah, right. We used to have, that was like a went. monthly thing. Yeah, people moved. That was sad. Had a, I forgot, was she a student? No. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, she was. Went off yeah. to Duke. Yeah, yeah. No, Wake. Anyway. Oh. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it's, it's all an ever-flowing river. You know, you got you to gotta drift in the, in the currents, but still, it, it's... You know, for, for me, it's a, a part of my life that I, I really need to have in, in terms of just having, a, you know, an hour or at least a week where I'm, I'm not sitting in front of a computer, you know, being a code monkey. And, um, you know, I've, I've got my, my YouTube videos at night when I'm doing my exercise or whatever, when I'm watching my prepper videos or, or what have you. But, um, yeah, I, I really do miss that, that aspect of, you know, being someone who, who cares about religion and, and the intersection between that and politics and, and faith and sexuality and all that kind of stuff. So, well, so what are you thinking about with the intersection of politics, especially today on this monumental day? Well, yeah, we don't, we don't want to get too topical of course, but um, just in general with the way politics kind of function in our country, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. I, so what I've been doing um, to have a little bit of, of, self-care, I guess, is <laughs> at night when, uh, when I, I get to get to the grocery store or get to get to run an errand or just make a loop around the big neighborhood. 
I, uh, I have kind of a self podcast that I don't record where I just talk out loud. And last night I was talking about this. So today, I mean, not to, again, not to be not evergreen and, and to be too topical, but uh, the attorney general uh, didn't show up for his uh, big hearing at, at the House Judiciary Committee um, meeting this morning. So it's, it's kind of blown up and we were both kind of watching earlier this morning over breakfast and a lot of, a lot of talking heads and a lot of pontification about what this means for the country and the balance of power and the separate but equal branches and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, th- I think it's interesting on, on one level, and this is what I was talking about to myself last night, which sounds crazy. And it probably is as I said, again, like literally outside the shadow of the uh, old state, uh, mental asylum. That's not what we <laughs> call them. Is it? Um, anyway, so what I really think is interesting in, in that intersection is that the nature and structure of church is, of course, changing. It always is, but especially with this generation um, or this this decade, I guess. And the same thing is happening with politics in terms of the rise of populism and the difference between what was kind of a once kind of a, a, a central core of people who cared about this stuff and talked about this stuff and watched Fox News or MSNBC or CNN all day. You know, there was a core of those people. And then there was the, the professional core who worked in Washington. And, you know, if you, if you were a teenager and you're interested, you went off to be a staffer and you work for, you know, Senator Hollings or Senator Thurmond, God forbid, and you sort of, uh, you know, you worked your way up, whatever. And now with the proliferation of social media and, and the internet, everybody has a hot take and everybody's able to be outraged by William Barr, even though they have no idea, you know, what, what the larger context is. Um, but, you know, we retreat into our, our Twitter list or our, our demographic uh, kind of covers. And the same thing happens with church, you know, and, and whether it's this mission trip that someone says, oh, you know, why are we spending all this money to send people to, uh, you know, French Guyana when we need that money here? Um, it, it just seems like both of those systems are kind of caught in this weird transition change because of that. But also, and I'll, I'll shut up here in a second, I'm not trying to mansplain, mansplain everything, but also the notion that something like politics and faith or, or, or religion, I, I should say, are sort of synonymous because right now we're going through this weird period where you can be someone who says, you know, I'm, a, I'm not an evangelical, I'm not, um, you know, crazy traditionalist, conservative, whatever. But in my faith, you have to have a risen Jesus. And if you say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all of this is mute, like Paul would say. And those liberal Christians of the 20th century need to go away because we're in a post-liberal age where theology should be for the church and, and the academy took us too far over on this side. And there's been a, a bunch of that in, in the last couple of weeks because of uh, a bunch of that talk, I should say, on, on theology Twitter because of an article that was posted in the New York Times featuring Serene Jones, who was a professor of mine, but is now, a, uh, now, now the president at Union Seminary in New York. And, um, and she's, she's fantastic. And, and she comes and in the of, UCC tradition, right? Yeah. I, I think she's UCC and something else, but yeah, I mean, she's primarily UCC. 
there's a lot of that in Connecticut and New York, <laughs> not here in South Carolina. Um, and what I, what I find fascinating is that she kind of created a, a firestorm amongst, um, I would say younger or, or I guess more woke, um, theology Twitter types who consider themselves, you know, politically liberal, but say, no, no, you have to have a risen Jesus because the uh, New York Times columnist, I think it was Christoph, Nicholas Christoph, asked her, you know, about things like bodily resurrection and the virgin birth. And she, you know, she kind of gave that answer that I would give in a, in a, you know, liberal theologian, or I'm not a theologian, but, you know, liberal uh, scholarship, 20th century based type answer. Like, well, you know, that's not what's important. Or in some Sunday class, Sunday school classes that you've taught. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not that terrible. And, and I'm, I, I would never say that out loud. Like, no, you don't have to believe in the, in the risen Jesus to, you know, have faith in, in God. Yeah, and her answer was God is love and, and that's what we should focus on. Sure. And, and that's a very 20th century answer, right? But, but she's not a, a 20th century theologian by, at, at all, you know? So it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, paradigm. And uh, so anyway, that, that, that cross current between the changes both in politics, but also in religion and, and church and in terms of how we interpret this stuff and what we do with it. It's been super interesting in, in the age of Trump and in the age of uh, post-liberalism and post-modernism, you know, it, it just feels like everything's kind of crumbling and, and changing and reshaping. And that's a good thing. I mean, we, we've come to an inflection point and uh, clearly the old ways weren't working so well. So here we are. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think when we heard from the evangelical leaders that God placed this president in the place and God can use anyone, suddenly all of our language, our religious language that we've been using for politics sounded a bit out of sorts and disconnected to some people who were you know, lifelong supporters of a certain party. And I think today in the reports that we were watching earlier this morning, you know, you hear the day of reckoning, the uh, clear and present danger and some of this prophetic language. And it's interesting to me to hear this language that you would find in a religious context more often, or even in a sermon or a worship context that is becoming a part of the rhetoric. I mean, I think it's always been there, but that's really interesting to me to see the way politics is being interpreted so publicly and with theology, really, if you think about it. Maybe I just haven't never noticed it, though. Maybe this is the way it always was, but I was a kid before, or I wasn't an ordained minister before, and so it didn't really stick in the same way, or it didn't stick out in the same way. You know, yeah, so I've been thinking about that a lot, too. Yeah, yeah, that's that's... I, I think that's that's kind of the thing. I, I was talking to myself about this the other night. Uh, sounds like a Christmas. Oh, you've done it more than song. once, then, huh? <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't just last night that you were talking to yourself. This is this is a common practice. Do you yeah. hear this, Thomas? <laughs> this is what I've become. And I was going to say this sounds like a Chris Christopherson lyric. I was you know, talking to myself about God the other night. Um, yeah, it does. <laughs> I think. I, I, I think it it. it it's a combination of like the tradition where you grew up, you were, you know, you weren't encouraged to really think about kind of systemic issues or, 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 you know, programmatic uh, difficulties, you know, like things I mean, aren't the way they are. There were definitely candidates who were godly candidates, right? 
Yeah, but I mean, both church and politics, you know, like God created the world, then there were Adam and Eve, and then we got Noah and then Moses, and everything has been this constant kind of stream of God revealing God's self to people through our pastor. You know, and it's, it's we're in, in this long line of people who have been walking with God and, and doing our thing. And, and that's what you need to focus on. Don't, don't worry about the guy molesting the kids in the bathroom. You know, don't worry about the, right. the white male bringing a gun to church. Like that's, that's all, you know, that, that'll, that'll take care of itself. And you gotta, you gotta hate the sin and not the sinners. Um, and I, I grew up in that tradition as well. I mean, not, not to that extent, but so what I was thinking the other night was, I, I think th- there are levels of maturity, right? So as you become an adult, when you're 25, you think you know everything and you're on fire for the Lord and you're out there, you're, you're going to change the world. You've got, you know, a good 60, 75 years maybe ahead of you. And you think, okay, well, you know, I've just begun my life. Like I, I've, I've woken up, went to college, maybe got a, a, a graduate degree. Here I am. I'm going to, I'm going to do something with my life. <laughs> and and that's from my privilege, you know, white male perspective where I get to get to grad school and all that stuff. But then by the time you're 30, you realize, man, I was an idiot when I was 25. And then when you get to be 35, you realize, wow, I was, I was such an idiot when I was 30. And then just turning 40 this year, I, I look back on 35 and, and I was like, God, what was I doing when I was 35? Like <laughs> that was, I was insane. Like wh- why would I make that decision and that decision? And I'm sure when I get to be 45, then 50, it'll happen. Um, you know, all the same, but uh, a lot of that has also been me processing you know, my own faith and, and my own view of politics. Um, and and I, I just, I don't know, I, I have a real issue with people who, who don't go through that kind of evolutionary change over time. And I, I just want to kind of shake people and say, no, you're not the same person you were when you were 25. And that's okay. And that's not the goal. The goal is not to be the same person. The, the goal is to continue to grow. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, even in a political world, but also in our religious context, you know, we have people who say, oh, but you said four years ago, this and this and this. And we hold people to statements and stances that they take in a different context, in a different time with a different set of knowledge. And I think that's something that we've been seeing a lot on both sides, right? So in some instances, a pattern of behavior does indicate that that person is going to act and react in a certain manner because once a pattern is reiterated, a certain, you know, it, it elicits the same behavior and the same reactions. So there's yeah. that, but then there's also the, Oh, well, but everybody can change and God can use everybody. And I'm like, yes, but you don't allow that if it's not a person that you support or not, of a subject or an issue even more that you support. Yeah. It's like uh, president Trump's campaign chairperson for 2020 tweeted out uh, on, on Sunday night that he was so thankful that God had delivered a savior like Donald Trump to help fix our nation. Which is so interesting, right? So, because there's not supposed to be another savior. Like there is only one savior. So if you hold the theological doctrine and tradition that people are coming from, they're contradicting their own ideas. Well, I think maybe they're, you know, he's hearkening back to the, the Cyrus passage, you know, and, and kind of this idea that, that Cyrus was 
kind of delivered by God and, and Daniel, you know, Cyrus gets called the Messiah or no, I'm sorry. Chronicles. Jeez. Don't, don't tweet me. Um, I was just reading Daniel, but uh, in Chronicles, you know, Cyrus, the great Persian uh, emperor uh, is the one who sends the Jews back home to rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, kind of reconstitute the country or the, the people that uh, were in the countries. Um, if you read Chronicles and, you know, he's kind of flipping over what Nebuchadnezzar had done and, and uh, his, his uh, previous Neo-Babylonian uh, forefathers. Anyway, so I, I think, I, I know I've heard that preached when I, when I listen to some of my more conservative uh, podcasts. Well, wow, there's a, do you hear that airplane? Yeah. I was going to ask jet. if it was a dinosaur. Yeah. Jet? It's, a, it's a low flying jet. Ooh. Everything okay over there? The fun part of being in a, in a military town. Anyway, yeah, I know, especially with what's going on today. So, the, you know, the, that idea of, of Donald Trump or Obama being kind of this new, you know, Cyrus the Great figure who he's not really like us and he's a pagan, but, you know, he's, he's the Messiah or he is a Messiah because he's been anointed by God. And that's what Messiah means. So, again, it, you know, most people, 99% of the people reading that don't know that the word Messiah just means anointed. It doesn't mean somebody who's going to come and, and save the, the people of Israel, but um, they know that tradition enough, especially if you've heard it preached in, in more conservative places. And he's, you know, doing what we call dog whistling, where you, you take a term that, that a certain Greek knows and, and you, you throw it out there like red meat and say, Hey, I'm, I'm on your team. I know you're insider language. And, you know, on, on the other side, you get the liberals who see that and just get outraged. And they're like, how could you say Donald Trump is a savior or a messiah? Like, that's insane, blah, blah, blah. And it, it's not really insane. What he's doing is, is playing politics. Um, and again, I think that goes back to this restructuring of, of the order of things. And it's, it's pretty interesting to see how, um, you know, people use language in, in such a weaponized way in, in just 280 characters on Twitter, especially. Um, yeah. And especially religious language. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, one of my favorite, I can remember in high school, one of my favorite, uh, discussions units, whatever we called them in high school was biblical allusions. Cause I was like, yes, like this, this is what I've been trained for. I'm going to get an A plus on this because I mean, I know my Bible. Right. And then I realized, Oh, wait a second. There's a lot of other meanings for this kind of insider language when you put it in a different context. And so the day of reckoning is something that of course that we hear in the prophetic, the prophets, all uh, minor and major prophets. But when you hear somebody in the po- political world today saying that that has a different meaning. Oh yeah. And it's, you know, and some of that's from our, I won't go into the whole thing. I wrote a paper on this once about, apocalypticism and, and 1950s and 60s uh, Westerns. Um, I, I love Clint Eastwood's Good, Bad, and the Ugly, kind of Man with No Name series. Uh, the Good, Bad, and the Ugly is kind of a, a theological movie, but he, he also did a movie called Pale Rider. And it starts off with you know the passage from Revelation where uh, it shows him riding in on this white horse, and it says, you know, and, and then another man came in on the horse, and, and the horse was white, and the, the man's name was Death. And he, he rides into this town and he, he um, at the end of the movie, not, not to spoil a, a movie from 1969, 
but at the end of the movie, <laughs> I think it's okay. <laughs> spoiler alert. He, uh, he, he gets all the bad guys out of town and, and he renames the town hell and paints it, you know, paints all the buildings red and there's a big fire. And anyway, it's this kind of apocalyptic scene. And then he rides off into the desert and you're, you're left wondering like, well, who was the good guy and the bad guy here? Cause <laughs> like, you know, Clint Eastwood's clearly got to be the good guy. And all of a sudden he's kind of taken on this role of, of Satan. So a lot of our, uh, a lot of our uh, assumptions about the apocalypse and, and the, yeah, terms like that, like day of reckoning get lumped in with, with kind of this imagery in, in the United States of, um, you know, kind of uh, us being the new Jerusalem, right. And this country being the, the place where, you know, God is going to be um, reconstituted because that, you know, Europe was, was, uh, had had its run and, and then it got too corrupt with the Pope and, and the Catholics and the, you know, the blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Africa was this and, you know, Asia is this, but here in the United States, we are God's chosen people. Yeah. That is definitely the belief. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and that goes back to our, our heritage. I mean, you know, when, uh, again, when I was up in grad school up North in Connecticut, um, you know, we would have to do some readings about the founders of the college and that kind of thing. And, you know, Yale, Harvard, Williams, you know, Andover, all, all these great, institutions were built as seminaries, you know, to train yes, first. men, right? And, uh, you know, William Bradford and, and all these, you know, Jonathan Edwards, we have Jonathan Edwards College at Yale. Uh, Jonathan Edwards centers in the hands of an, uh, in the hand of an angry God. You know, this idea that God's holding us over the fire, but also that America is the, the last great hope for humanity as a country. Uh, that goes back to our founding uh, kind of psychology. So uh, I think, when, when Trump talks about making America great again, or when, you know, a, a politician plays into God, faith and country, you know, what they're doing is hearkening back to this kind of cultural psychology that, that we've developed over the last 300, 400 years. And that doesn't work in Europe. That doesn't work in, in, you know, East Asia, but, but it's, it's something unique to America. And I think people like Jerry Falwell, um, you know, junior have, have really tapped into that and, and are, are playing on that in, in kind of a dangerous way. Yeah. No, but I think you're right. I think we're starting to see cracks in that system, that that's a, um, definitely a mantra, a message, uh, you know, kind of, I would say propaganda that isn't working anymore or that has holes in it that are pretty glaring. And so, you know, as people are, starting to wake up or be woke as you will, we're starting to recognize uh, not only in our churches, does that political language and the power and posturing take place, but now in our political system, we're realizing, Oh wait, this is also taking place in our political system where it is all a big group of people who are very wealthy, who continue to get wealthy. (laughs) So, I mean, you're, you're a little younger than I am just by a little bit. I mean, do you, do you see that? I mean, I, I know it's, it's, you know, we talk about the millennials or whatever, but I, I think Gen Z after you is even more different. And then whatever we're going to call the next generation, they're super different. And they're going to be writing letters and, and sending telegrams, I think. You know, so like, do, do you feel that kind of transition that we Gen Xers and boomers kind of, kind of project onto you all? Yeah, I mean, I think there's... 
been so much research on the way millennials are changing, the economy are changing, the spiritual landscape and the religious landscape. There hasn't been as much about the way millennials are changing the political landscape. And I think perhaps we'll see, we did see, right, that millennials did show up in, in great numbers. Uh, so millennials are the generation that now is has the highest majority of the population as boomers. It used to always be boomers. You poor uh, Gen Xers have, I don't know, what happened to you guys? <laughs> the boomers just didn't have as many as you, of you. Yeah, they're, they're a little selfish. We're, we're the forgotten generation. You yes. are the forgotten generation. Like nothing's been written says. Nothing's been written about you. You know, people don't really uh, talk about your <laughs> religious beliefs or anything like that. We are the unwanted stepchildren of history, is what Tyler Durden says in Fight Club. Well, and I think there is something to that, right? Millennials are much more interested in posting pictures of our avocado toast and buying avocados in great numbers just to see if we can impact things. And so to a certain extent, you know, I think that we are experimenters and, and we want to test the system and to see if we can mess with it a little bit, you know? And so I think that we're starting to see these little uh, cracks that are forming in the attempts by millennials to come together, but also just to find our voice. I, yeah, I really I, think uh, we were experimenters, right? We, I went to college when Facebook was first launched and it was um, experimented in college universities, right? We are the guinea pigs of so many things. Yeah. We, uh, we did different types of experimenting in college. We didn't. Use yeah. Those. I mean, but I mean, we, <laughs> right. Right. So we had, um, cell phones for the first time in high school, you know, the car phone wasn't existent anymore. Um, so I, I think in a lot of ways we are experimenting with how we can impact things, how we can find a voice and how we can make a difference. And, and that's true a lot because we entered the workforce and for instance, in the teaching profession, I was, the generation, at least here in South Carolina, that we were last hired, first fired. And so even though we had degrees, even though there was a shortage of teachers, we got a job and then we lost that job. And then sometimes we got that job back or we got a different job. And so we were the ones that were constantly getting moved around because the boomers had gone back to the Terry program. And so they were taking positions that first time teachers would have taken, but I'm sorry, Gen Xers just didn't go into the teaching profession at the rate that boomers had. Well, yeah, then no millennials way. did go into the teaching profession, but when we decided that we were going to try to help out, you know, <laughs> the people, the great need that existed in the school system, we were rewarded with being fired. Now, many times that, you know, that was, you got rehired or something like that, but I think we have an inherent distrust of the system because the system hasn't really offered us anything wonderful yet. Yeah, that's what we keep hearing. Like, you know, the system of, of church, right? So many of, of the millennials who are coming out in the Church Two movement and the Me Too movement are saying, No, my story is that I experienced abuse in the church. So why would I go back to the place where I experienced abuse? Like I'm trying to heal. I'm happy to tell my story, but I'm not going to go to the back to the place 
where that hurt was issued. I'm not going to go back into the economic system that can fire me just as easily as they hire me. Why would I invest in that system? Let me create something else. I read a, uh, a thread last night on Twitter from a pastor who I think he was like ex-evangelical, but he, he said he, he worked for, you know, mega churches, worked for small churches. Um, I forgot. I'll, I'll see if I can find him, put it in the show notes. But he, um, he, he completely is walking away from the church and yeah. you know, it's led to divorce and, and like falling out with friends. But he was like, I, I realized like I've hurt people and people have hurt me. And we don't talk enough about how churches abuse pastors, but you know, I'm 28 and I'm ready to start my life and I've got to get out of this because it's nonstop abuse from church members and church members, you know, I've come to realize in, in the four churches where I've worked are generally very needy and terrible people, <laughs> you know, basically. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, preach brother. Um, and our, I mean, uh, and the large majority of people who still go to church on a weekly basis are baby boomers. Well, yeah. I mean, so I think, I think that's kind of what I was talking about to myself. You know, what you, what you just said, like this idea of, uh, you know, not being satisfi- satisfied with the system, but then, you know, the system was set up basically for boomers both with their parents, you kind of setting everything up for them. And, uh, and then us Gen Xers were too busy, you know, listening to Nirvana and, and drinking lattes and, you know, we're like, nah. Um, so, you know, you all come into the system and you have student loan debt and you have this and this and this. Um, but we have this like inherent uh, optimism that we are the generation that's going to change things or turn things around because somebody told us that, right? And now we have all of these research, all this research, peer research that we have an effect on uh, avocado sales and church a decline. And like we have some power here. So now we're only re-emboldened to go and mess with stuff. Well, now and you're so, AOC and, and you know. yes. Uh, Pete, <laughs> oh yeah, we can get some in. people in there who can be on the national stage. Like there are becoming gaps in power and in power systems where millennials, and I think that this is not a, not necessarily fair, but millennials are getting job over Gen Xers. And so Gen Xers are staying at the kind of advisory level, or if you're talking about church structure, they're holding down the fort in the associate pastor positions, but Gen Xers are not getting the pastor positions. Millennials are. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's millennial some males. And, and what I think is really interesting is that uh, both in church and in politics, we think of millennials and, and Gen Z as, as being much more liberal or yep. you know, much more to the left of boomers or, or even Gen Xers. And, you know, Gen Xers were kind of the last like Clinton, you know, type Bill Clinton uh, type uh, generation where, you know, we're kind of centrist and we, we want to see like all sides of the issue, whatever. Um, no, no, no. But, yeah, but that's not true. I, I mean, and especially in religion. I mean, there are so many you know, younger people who are politically liberal or, or aligned with politically liberal issues who are but it's also, more yeah, traditional and, it, and, and, and faith. Yeah, and I think the other thing is uh, nobody tells us what to believe. You know, we kind of overcame. If we grew up in the evangelical mo- movement, we've overcome that. And we recognize, oh, you tried to tell me to be this way, but we've overcome something in the sense of fighting for our own identity. And so you'll find this even, I'll, I'll tell some of my friends, I'm like, they're like, oh yeah, I, I attend a non-denominational church. I'm like, oh, which one? And they'll say the name and I'm like, yeah, that's not a non-denominational church. That's a Southern Baptist church plant. And I'll even show them like where the money goes in the convention 
and they're to back to the convention and they'll say, no, it's non-denominational. And I'm even when presented with evidence to the contrary of what we think and what we believe, we're going to think and believe what we believe. We're not yeah. necessarily I mean, going to change our minds. Nature. Yeah. And I think that's even more the case now that we have access to so much more information, you know, and we have algorithms telling us what to think and kind of reaffirming our biases. And so it's like, well, if I go search for a flat earth video on YouTube, then I go down a very strange rabbit hole where, you know, a couple of videos later I'm watching, you know, Russian dash cam footage of, of motorcycles crashing. Um, you know, or, or we joke all the time when, when you see my YouTube feed, you know, full of like <laughs> knife reviews and, and uh, survival gear and that kind of stuff. And compared to yours, um, you know, it's, it's always a, a funny, funny thing to see how, it, not how easy it is to get radicalized, but how easy it is to, you know, really kind of go down a, a rabbit hole of, of self-confirmation. Oh, for sure. Especially when you have a little bit of an audience and a little bit of a stage, right? And so, I, yeah, I think it's a really interesting time because we are seeing, seeing this change and this pushing. Um, and we're also just the way people work, I think is much different. The choices that millennials are making to not work a nine to five, not be in the same company for 15 to 20 years is changing the way work systems happen. Right. So for instance, I might take a job and if I am in that job and I think, oh man, this is reeking of this other situation where it turned into abuse or it turned into an unhealthy situation or I'm not sleeping at night. I think millennials are more prone to just say, mm, I'm just going to, I'm not going to be a part of this anymore. Whereas Gen Xers are like, oh, let, you know, no, let's stick it through, be consistent, that kind of thing. In the workforce, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Why would I risk stepping out? I mean, I have all of this other thing and millennials still, you know, we're like in our thirties. Right. And so we're like, well, it'll work out. We still have time to work it out. I still have time to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're like, well, we hate our job, but we have to go because we need insurance. And well, yeah. And I talked and I, yeah. And I talked to someone too. And, and they were like, well, I mean, I worked in this, you know, for 15 years and I'm, I was trying to kind of open the, the pathway to considering that people don't work for that long in the same place anymore. Well, we'll, we'll end on, on your favorite topic. So I, I, I think it's interesting that when, you know, Gen X, maybe Boomer, um, you know, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, they get to a certain point and there's something like a like in your case, you know, there's like a, a, a head pastor position and they get that position because they've put in all this time and it's, it's her turn and all that kind of stuff. And the church doesn't necessarily grow. There's not a great deal of excitement. Um, you know, there's some grumblings, but they, they stick in that position because they deserve it. Right. Um, I think that's a really interesting conversation too, about like, is there a responsibility for people to say, eh, I should help out the younger generation by giving them, you know, this opportunity or, or by, you know, maybe looking at serving in a different capacity. I'm trying not to step on toes with <laughs> talking in generalities. I'm, I'm not talking about. No, I mean, people, I think there's a, I think there's a big movement among millennials to say, all right, your time's up. Like you had not necessarily to Gen Xers, not to you. Joe Biden. <laughs> but but to to baby boomers, right? Like you've had your go. 
step aside now and let, let some other people have a voice, like let go of having to control everything because you've controlled everything for a while. You know, it, it's time to move on. And I'm not 20. I'm 30. I should be established in a career. I should be established in the same place, but I have to keep moving around to try to find just a little bit more income or just a little bit more flexibility because I'm raising young kids now. And so you're not making this easy. And the boomers are saying, well, we can't retire because we didn't save and the economy crashed. Well, actually, that's not my fault. Like you crashed the economy, so you go figure it out by piecing together two and three jobs. So you do have this. And then of course you Gen Xers are just uh, caught in the backlash back and forth between the two of us. Right. Yep, Mom and dad are fighting. Well, like in the staff meeting, right. Where, where you have like the young millennial pastor and then you have uh, a baby boomer uh, music minister or somebody who's been there for a long time, right? You're going to have this. And then you have the associate minister who is been there for a good, you know, seven years has really established, um, himself usually. And so that associate minister is trying not to get up, get worked into the politics of this kind of thing. But you see the same thing, I think in our political context, right? That yeah. these, um, Gen Xers are trying to figure out like, can I have a go at the presidency? Like, would that help for me to step up in that way? Whereas, uh, you know, other people, and then you have the baby boomers who are like, well, let me try again. I mean, let me just have enough experience and we don't want these young whippersnappers coming up and just, you know, they don't know anything yet. So I can't tell you how many times in my professional career as a minister, I was told, Five, you you need to invest five to ten years. Just yeah. just, just just wait your turn. You invest five to ten years, and, you, and 10 then we'll years. start listening yeah. to your voice. Right. And I always push back on that because I said I've already invested five years in a career. I've already invested as a professional. I got up and went to work for five years. I, I think don't, that's don't a, treat me like a twenty-something-year-old. I'm not twenty-something. Even then, I mean, I yeah, made I, the choice to re start here because I believed I could do something to help. And I was called to do something to help this system that's failing. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. You, you nailed it. I mean, that I think that's the, the core of the issue between the generational divides and, and kind of this myth of needed experience, you know, uh, because then we were making, especially in the church, but even in politics, you know, I've got friends who are like, oh, you know, Mayor Pete's not old enough to run for president. He's only 37. He would only be 38 when he got inaugurated. That's way too young. And we said the same thing about Jack Kennedy. We said, or John Kennedy, we said the same thing um, about Obama when he was 44. And we said the same thing about Bill Clinton, who was a pretty young guy at the time. And, you know, he, he was just a governor. Like he needs to, you know, spend some time growing his base and, and becoming a senator and, and then maybe we'll elect him when he's, you know, what, Joe Biden is, what, 77, 76 years old? He's 76. And we're all going, 76-year-olds should yeah. be in a nursing home. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but. that's not true. But, but all that to say, I think there, there's a real myth, just like our creation myths uh, as a country, there's a real myth in the United States that you have to have so many years of experience. And we see this all the time, whether it's, you know, getting hired for a job or, or something like this where, you know, you're, you're looking at pastor positions and the, the search committee says, well, you know, we love you and, and you're doing a great, you're doing great work. And, 
Um, we, we really respect what you've built up, but we're looking for someone with a little bit more experience or, or someone who has a demon behind their name, which all that says is that someone has been a pastor for 10 years and then they went back to school and got a grant to go get four letters behind their name. Um, no offense to anyone who has a demon, but <laughs> <laughs> shots fired. But the idea that you have to have this much experience to do this job is, is complete and utter bullcrap. Um, every job that I've been in that I've done my best work, whether it was teaching or in the corporate world or marketing are jobs where I started fresh and I knew nothing. And I went, <laughs> I went in with a little bit of brain and I was trained on how to do what I need to, to do by good bosses or sometimes bad bosses, but people who kind of took me under the wing and said, okay, now here's how you want to do uh, you know, this, or here's a book you should read about this. Not saying that professional education doesn't matter. And I know you care a lot about that. But especially in the church, I, I think we have this totally skewed notion because we have financial directors or, or financial committees or board committees or deacon boards or whatever that are all made up of businessmen and these and occasionally businesswomen who are even nastier to other women. But, yeah. but these businessmen who come in thinking in a, in a corporate CEO type mindset and they want to see, you know, a 55 year old gray haired guy who's got education, but also has put in 25 years and doesn't have any gaps in his work experience, had all of his kids when he was 20 to 25. Uh, you know. And his wife took care of them. Yeah, so exactly. he didn't have to take a gap. So he didn't have to take work. a gap. Yep. So that's what they want. And that's especially true we of larger churches. We want stability. Well, the we want stability doesn't exist in this context right now. But they make it about the person and they don't make it about the calling. You know, And especially yep. in, in my Baptist tradition, that's something I always push back on people when I hear that is, well, you're making it about this like job search for a corporate executive. And that's not what this is, you know, the, mm-hmm. especially pastor uh, clerical work is about a calling to a place. And if we're going to have this Baptist model or even the Methodist or Lutheran or Episcopalian or Presbyterian model, um, y- you can't make it about a set of job qualifications. And I, I do so many church websites and I'm always having to put these, you know, qualifications for pastor. And it's, it, it reads like all you would have to do is, is you know, search and, and replace pastor with, you know, business owner or CEO or whatever, and it would it would completely be the same pastor description. And that's really frustrating because I think we missed the point. And I, I think a lot of our institution, like our, our denominational structures, are really laying down churches by not educating them about that. Because that myth of, of needed experience is, is just, I, I think, really toxic, um, you know, whether you're 25 or 75. I think it's it's absolutely crap, and and it it is one of the reasons that we're seeing the church crumble and, and change. Well, and what a, another thing that we're seeing show up on position descriptions of pastors or ministers at any level is the same thing that shows up on a teacher contract in South Carolina: other duties as prescribed. Right, and that's one of the things that we're realizing is that millennials are going to try, right? They think that they can help the system. They think they can change the system. We're still idealistic, even though, I mean, because we've seen the way that technology has changed. We grew up with technology and have gone from our car phones to our smartphones. Like we know advances and changes can take place in a short period of time. And so we have this belief that that's going to take place in the church and we're going to give it our effort, but if that system doesn't change or if that system issues abuse and hurt, we've already done that before in our teenage years. And so we're not going to participate in it. 
we're going to take ourselves out of it and just let the system crumble because we know that that's not a tenable model anymore. We know that setting up giving records or setting up giving expectations that are based on being paid every month a certain amount where you can, um, you make the same amount each month, you can tithe the same amount each month, and you can tithe 10% is outdated. People don't get paid that way. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, try to get a mortgage as a self-employed person or as a small business owner. <laughs> but, that, uh, but that's going to change too, right? So this is the eternal thing in millennials. It's like, well, we already upended the mattress world. We upended the avocado toast world. We've impacted the way that you buy, you know, what alcohol is bought. And we've impacted the brunch industry because we don't go to church anymore. And so like restaurants used to not be opened on Sunday until after church was over. Well, that's not the case anymore because people realize, oh, these young millennials do want to get up and do something on Sunday and they want to go to brunch. And they want to drink their mimosas or they want to drink their Bloody Marys or whatever, you know? And so I think, I think that's a, that your comment is the difference between Gen Xers and millennials. Like, no change is coming. It's going to happen. And the revolution, you know, all of this and Gen Xers are like, eh, it's not going to yeah. happen. Yeah. We, we've, we've had too many interactions with baby boomers sitting across the table saying, that's a great idea. We'll, we'll form a committee to, explore that. Yes. Let's, let's form an ad hoc committee for that. Yeah. Right. You you can lead the committee if you want to, we'll we'll do an illumination project and and try to figure out what best ways to address this controversy. Um, yeah, I know, I know, I know it's, and it is changing and it's, it's cool to see things like Casper and not a, not a sponsor, but they could be, um, you know, it's cool to see things we actually have a Casper mattress because of podcasting. Yes, we do. But um, there's like six different ones now. And, you know, I worked at yeah. a seminary and I worked at the seminary where boxes came in and that's how people were buying their um, mattresses. And now I'm seeing Carvana, you know, trucks all over the place. Like, yeah, yeah my dad's things in the are starting. Yes, things like, are you know, starting Carvana to is, change based on uh, Uber Eats. I was going like, to say Uber itself, yeah. Uber, Uber Eats, like millennials are participating in the economy much differently than Gen Xers and baby boomers did. And I think the last place that we're seeing change is in the church, which is to be expected. Right. But we're seeing experimentations. We're seeing church plants. We're seeing, um, you know, there's in North Carolina, there's a church that just goes running on Sunday. We're seeing, uh, Churches that we're trying are to like the, the Sunday night, you know, fellowship church model, like that Methodist model of right back in the house. homes of supper clubs and right. and those kinds of things. And so you have like some of these baby boomer seventies kind of feel that's coming back. And well, it's, it's a, that's a very ancient thing, you know. And it, I mean, that's I mean, that's how the the church started <laughs> as it as it was. Um, you know, at Dory Ripus, it was a, a Christian house. It wasn't you know, a church and that was in 256, you know, so th- there's that, uh, that appropriation of culture that Christianity is so good at doing because it, it became the, the center of culture, of course, after Constantine, blah, blah, blah. But this idea of, you know, exploring new means and, and exploring new paths is very exciting for, for your group, but for my group and, and the old people, it's, 
very threatening, you know, in a way. And but not all of them. Not all of them. Not all of them. No, no, no. You know, I sat on a panel recently, uh, an ecumenical panel uh, about LGBTQIA, and there was a retired Methodist bishop, and he said, I was wrong about this. You yeah, know, and, and I had really good people. We want to hear Joe Biden saying, I was wrong about Anita Hill, and I shouldn't have handled it that way. Not, oh, I apologize to her. And, and you know what? Millennials, I think, would offer forgiveness. Like, yeah, hey, totally. I get it. It was a different world that you're in, and now this world, now you're still living in it. You've seen the rapid change that we've seen. So I appreciate that from you. And then he might get, you know, some of these young voters who are about that. But this clinging to a dying system is something millennials have no time for. Yeah. Like, we'll just abandon ship. But it serves uh, in the political, I said, in the religious sector, churches being created in other places, in um, restaurants, during brunch, in houses. And, you know, we have close-knit groups of people that are forming themselves and millennials are understanding, I don't need to go to church because I can form my little church community how I want to about whatever is important to me, right? Uh, craft yeah, brewing. Well. Yes, we'll go to the brewery and hang out and all of our kids will be there playing. And that, that'll be my kind of church experience or my community. Um, and that's fine. So, but I, I do wonder like, if, if those movements, as, those, as you all get old and older, right? are, are they going to look for buildings? Are they going to, you know... I mean, you've done a number of, you know, part-time pastor positions at smaller churches that once had many more members than they did. And then they kind of shrunk down after, you know, the, the economic collapse and, and all sorts of things. So. But also who scaled up too quickly, right? This so this is kind of. That's what you did back in the day. You scaled up quickly yep. and you could have that. And and, it would and they scale. were run by boomers who, who were a part of building campaigns. Right. And it was the so, equivalent of a building campaign. And they kept all their stuff in storage. And there's always this dream of one day, you know, recapitulating this, the, the, the number of people they had. And they don't want to move out of the old building, even though they can't afford it. Because, and they always have a building fund that you right. can't touch unless you're building the building. Right. So yeah. do, you think, do you think millennials are going to do the same thing in terms of wanting to have, you know, that church building with the steeple? I don't know. I don't, I don't think that millennials are attracted to that kind of space. I think that kind of space represents hurt and pain for too many millennials. I think that it might go to the place uh, where a lot of the great cathedrals in Europe went to when I was there 10 years ago, where it was a museum. Like, ah, oh, I mean, yeah, that's cool. And it's a cool place, but like, I don't want to go to church there. I don't, I want to go to church in like a warehouse in a different space. And I think a lot of that has to do with hurt and pain that we experienced um, emotionally, physically, you know, sexual abuse, those kinds of things, but also growing up in the expectation that's that, that that is where you would be and not having a choice to go or to not to go. Yeah. So, I mean, you do have people who are very dedicated to the churches that their parents went to, but not in the same way that we saw from boomers who were like, no, I have to go to this church because my family has gone to this church. Yeah. And even some Gen Xers. Yeah. Right. So millennials are like, no, I get to choose where I want to go. And, you know, I'm never going (laughs) to, but every generation says, I'm never going to make my kids do what my parents made me do. Right. I think to a certain extent, 
Yeah, but I, I do think. Go ahead. I think millennials do have the inclination to pull out to just say, well, I'm not going to support that at all. And so we, we could see this in the political context in that millennials just won't show up to vote because eh, they're going to do what they're going to do and I'm not going to make an impact. So hmm. whatever. Yeah. That's more of a Gen X thing. <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I just think that's, that's really interesting. It's going to be fun to, to track and, and see what happens with Gen Z. And, and again, I, and I do lots of these talks about generational differences and we're not, we're not trying to stereotype and, and general, you know, generalize because it's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of silly to say, well, if, if you're 40 and above, then you think this way. And if you're 40 and below, you think this way, but there are some commonalities and in, in terms of worldview. And I know between you and I, like when we talk about things, whether it's social media or music, you know, there's some real worldview differences there. Um, or just, you know, how history works. <laughs> well, and I think also, you know, we have older kids. I, um, I'm 34, but I have an 11 year old that I'm a part of the parenting experience with, which a lot of 34 year olds don't have kids that are that old. Well, these days, so, but, I mean, back yeah. in the day, that was, I mean, my mom had me when she was 20 and that was very common. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Like my mom was 35 and then already had six kids. Right. And yeah. But I think that that provides some perspective too, right? So I ha- I'm taking on, well, and you and I are both kind of on the cusp. So I'm taking on some of the Gen X kind of worries and concerns about raising teenagers <laughs> with technology and all of the information, you know, because that's... And, and that bleeds over into church too, I think. Cause absolutely. People, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't... I, there's, we have so many clients who start off doing things like online donations and then someone one person will say something and the whole church will say, okay, we'll just turn off the online donations. We don't want to, we, we don't want to do that. We're, we're going to go back. We to don't want to deal with that. Yeah. Cash. Yeah. We don't want to deal with it. Our finance director is part time and she's already strapped for time and it's just hard for her to log into a website. And, you know, some people complain because they want to see people putting money into the plate. Yeah. Well, yeah so yeah. much, but I, 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 the other thing I heard recently, I was, I was asking somebody, well, you know, are you on Instagram? Are you on Twitter? Like what kind of social media are you involved in? Not that I was suggesting you need to be involved in all of it, but just asking like, you know, what could we do in that front? And, um, they said, Oh, well, we only have a Facebook page and we only have a Facebook page because we don't have the staff to support it. We don't have the staff that can do all that social media stuff. Right. And whereas I think as a millennial, part of your responsibilities are almost always to be involved in the social media of whatever organization you are, because you're a digital native to social media, because you, you know, were a professional with social media, you were a college kid with social media. And so you're supposed to handle the social media. And sometimes what that mean, what that line means, we don't have the staff to is we don't have a millennial on staff who we can dump this off. Now, even as a millennial, I don't, I had no training in social media or branding or marketing, but suddenly I am a millennial. And so my position includes doing the social media for an organization. Yeah. I, I think that's so dangerous being a professional. Yeah. That's, I mean, in my, it's like in our, my, our, our college interns know nothing about, you know, Facebook ads or, no, or and they always get or Instagram. Well, you handle the social media because you know that stuff. Yeah. I mean, right. for me, I have a master's degree in digital literacy and in critical literacy. And so 
you know, I think I, I did have experience and the impact of that and the branding and, and all of that, in addition to the protection issues having to do with students in the classroom and all of these other things and, and child protection policies. So like my lens is different than a lot of millennials because of my training, but yeah, so many people, and I look at my friends who are doing social media for their business or, or something. And I'm like, Oh gosh, no, like, don't do that. That's not good. But they're expected to do it as part of their job, just based on their generation. Yeah. I think that's, that's such a terrible uh, road to go. Um, you know, it would be like saying, Oh, you're 75. So you, you get to handle the, uh, what the flower bouquet, you know, something, you know, based on, on assumptions about age and, ability. Right. Well, and I think, well, it's, well, but you use social media. Okay. But I eat food. I'm not going to go to a restaurant and cook. Or my favorite thing was, you know, when, when the, a woman gets put in in terms of like in charge of communications or in charge of PR or even like, uh, what's the creative services is is the one I always hear in my capacity. Uh, and it typically there's a, a middle-aged woman who's in charge of it because she got put in charge of it when she was, you know, late twenties, early thirties, because right. women are the creative ones in, in the corporate world. Right. So that creative services person eventually becomes Not director the of, logical one. Yeah. Right. They eventually become director of marketing or, or you know, VP of marketing. Cause they just kind of coast through. Oh, and, and uh, that they're head of finance. Right. Cause women don't do that. Yeah. But typically, yeah. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, uh, that that's, we do have that, but that's, you know, they have professional degrees, but it's always these uh, people who get into positions of power, especially like in a marketing department who, um, who have no background in, in, you know, kind of the study or academic or, or even like the application of marketing, not to contradict what I was saying earlier, but you know, they've actually never done anything with it, but they're now in charge of this corporate department because they played the game and they were, there were the the nice cute you know blonde girl who was creative services and then creative services director and then this and then this you know kind of rose up. Um, I just always think that's and they it, kept showing up for work. You know, right. I, I see not that all, like all the time. Damn millennials who don't come to work <laughs> and just want time off and just want to do part time. Yeah, uh, they take like all their vacation at home. days. Can you yeah. believe that? And they want like flexible workspace and flexible work hours and oof. It's it's a it's a maternity leave and paternity <laughs> leave and all of these crazy things. Especially if they're teachers, you know, like they knew what they were getting into when they became teachers. <laughs> they, don't, they shouldn't complain about their pay. Even though in the church world and also in the teaching world, baby boomers took so much of the money without thinking about investing in other people. Like, Sure. Take your $215,000 to run a church and then offer the next pastor 60. Well, six. we're going we're gonna to combine that position. And if, if your spouse can, and we're gonna can help offer be a pastor. You 66. And also, could you get your benefits through your partner and not through us? Great. Yeah. We'll, we'll give you a housing allowance. That's great. And then we'll, no, we don't have a parsonage anymore. Right. Like you have a housing allowance. I mean, it's not fair market value for housing in this area, but I mean, we sold the parsonage. We needed the money. Yep. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> yep. That's where we are. Oh, this took a turn. This took a turn. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's therapeutic to be able to talk. And, uh, you know, you, you start off with one and then you, you keep riffing. There you go. All right. Anything else? Where can people uh, find out more about you? 
No, they don't need to find about me. <laughs> They'll hear about me soon enough. No. I'll put a link in the show notes. Love you. All right. Love you.